All right, we're going to pick up with verse 6 in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Uh, let's go ahead and read it, but we'll start with verse 1. Just go ahead and read a little bit of the context that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then verse 6 is where we'll start today. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In the last section that we looked at, that I had just read, um, Paul gave Timothy kind of a final charge. And it was to proclaim the message, right? To preach the word. So no matter what, no matter who's listening even, do the work that God has given you to do. Fulfill your ministry. That's how verse 5 ends. He says, as for you, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. And then in verse 6, he says, for I have finished mine. Basically, that's my paraphrase. You fulfill your ministry, for now I have completely finished mine. And so, again, we're just seeing in this letter kind of the main emphasis of Paul uh, of of passing on the baton of faith. He's, he's telling Timothy to continue the work that he's done, the baton of the gospel. Pass and guard and protect. Pass that faith along. What you saw me doing, Timothy, you do the same thing. So a few notes we'll just work through uh, to make sure we're understanding the passage correctly here. Verse 6 says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. What's a drink offering? In the Old Testament, an Israelite priest would pour out um, wine in front of the altar or maybe on the animal sacrifice as an act of worship. It was something that was uh, called for by God. So an offering to God. It was always, I believe, um, in connection with an animal and a grain sacrifice. You can read about the uh, read about it in the book of Numbers. Why would Paul mention this? drink offering specifically. You know, he tells the Christians in Rome to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, right? But why a, a drink offering? Why does he say that? Well, I think there might be a couple reasons for that. I'll share those. Uh, first of all, Paul was about to be martyred, right? We've talked about that. Um, and as a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified, so it was likely that he'd be beheaded. And so literally, his blood would, would be poured out. So maybe he was considering the death that he was about to die. The drink offering also 
was um, in addition, as I said, to the animal sacrifice. And it was never without the animal sacrifice. So some also have suggested that um, the animal sacrifices represent Christ and the drink offering or the wine represent the blood of the saints. So it's maybe like Paul, what Paul says in Colossians 1, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. But anyway, how cool it is that Paul sees his life as an offering to the Lord. It's almost like he's rejecting this idea that he'll be, um, that his life will be taken away from him, that he's going to be killed. Because instead, no, he's offering his life as a sacrifice. Kind of like what Jesus says. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Well, Paul didn't have to keep speaking up about Jesus everywhere that he went and bring all of this persecution on himself. So it was really his choice, in a way, to offer up his life as a, as a drink offering to the Lord. The time of my departure has come, he says next. Departure is uh, was then and is for us kind of a well-known euphemism for death, right? Um, I'm going to read uh, a quote from uh, commentator William Barclay, who kind of describes what this word is about, uh, departure. It is the word for unyoking an animal from the shafts of the cart or the plow. Death to Paul was rest from labor. Secondly, it is the word for loosening bonds or fetters. Death for Paul was a release. He was to exchange the confines of a Roman prison for the glorious liberty of the courts of heaven. Number three, it is the word for loosening the ropes of a tent. For Paul, it was a time to strike camp again. He had made many journeys across the roads of Asia Minor and of Europe. Now he was setting out on his last and greatest journey. He was taking the road that led to God. And fourthly, this word departure, it's a word for loosening the mooring ropes of a ship. On many occasions, Paul had felt his ship leave the harbor for the deep waters. Now he is to launch out into the greatest deep of all, setting sail to cross the waters of death to arrive in the haven of eternity. Then still quoting from William Barclay. So for Christians, death is laying down the burden in order to rest. It is laying aside the shackles in order to be free. It is dismantling a temporary campsite in order to take up residence in the heavenly places. It is casting off the ropes which bind us to this world in order to set sail on the voyage which ends in the presence of God. So departure is a great picture of the Christian death, right? It's not an end, it's being let loose into eternal life. Uh, obviously, it's sad for those who are left behind. And you can imagine Timothy as he's reading this. This is the first place in the letter, actually, um, where, where though we've been hinting at it the whole, um, the whole series here, this is the first time Timothy would have read very clearly that Paul thinks that he is um, about to die fairly soon. Not too soon, because he tells Timothy to come visit him in the winter. Uh, we'll see next time. But he knows he's going to die soon. And this might become as a shock to Timothy. 
uh, though he might have kind of read the language earlier too and seen it. But you can imagine Timothy's sadness as Paul is about to depart. It was just in the first chapter that we read that Paul um, was, he remembered Timothy's tears probably from the last time that they had departed from each other, which would only be for a time of years. And now this departure, obviously for Timothy as he's reading this, is uh, incredibly um, overwhelming. And uh, still though, Paul is using the word departure, not presenting death negatively, but in a good light. I'm being loosed. I'm being set free. I'm giving my life as an offering. So as we get to our time of reflection a little later, we'll ask the question, do you share this perspective on death? That your life has been an offering to the Lord? That your death will be a departure in the sense of being let loose? We'll talk about that. Um, next verse, I have fought the good fight. Fight can either be taken militarily or um, athletically. And I think it's probably the second, but it has with it the idea of struggle. That's kind of what the word means. Agona is, um, is it's where we get the word agony. So it's, it's a struggle. And Paul's saying that is where he's at. He's fought the good struggle or he's struggled through the good struggle. And I think it's really important for us to ask here, what is that good fight? Because I'll hear that phrase. It's not uncommon even outside of Christian circles uh, for somebody who has just died. And usually they've had a hard fought battle with um, cancer or some terminal illness. And at the end of their life, maybe at their funeral, somebody says they fought the good fight. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Good here means noble or virtuous. And it refers to the fight itself, not the way in which the fight was fought. So Paul isn't saying, I nobly fought this fight of life. But he's saying, I fought the fight that is noble. Well, what's the noble fight? If we look at what follows, if we consider what he's been saying this whole letter, we realize that he's talking about the good fight of faith, or as he's about to say, keeping the faith, which we'll talk about in just a minute here. Um, he even says in 1 Timothy, uh, he tells Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. So this is a specific fight. It's not just the fight of life. But we, we find out more about it here in the next line. I have finished the race. Again, this is not Paul talking about life itself is the race, as if everybody on their deathbed could say, well, in the same sense as Paul, I finished the race. Well, race here doesn't just mean that he made it through the appointed duration of his life. Race, like fight, is a particular race that, that has a goal. So it's not... It's not a real big accomplishment to say, I lived and now I die. I finished the race. It's like, well, yeah, everybody does. Um, some people translate the word race, and I think this is right, as race course. Or, or even career. So Paul has a, a course to accomplish. In Acts 20, verse 24, he says this, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, 
if only I may finish my course, or that's the same word race. If only I may finish my race and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's the course that Paul has been on. And now he's saying here in 2 Timothy, he's completed the ministry that he received from Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. That's the course. Paul is talking about the most important, noble fight and race of them all, the ministry of the gospel. And you can see it even in the context, as he just said to Timothy in verse 5, fulfill your ministry. And here he's saying, I've fulfilled mine. He's not telling Timothy, go on to your death, live and die. So life in general, he's saying, no, fulfill what God has given you to do. And I've fulfilled what God has given me to do. So the next time you're at a funeral and you hear somebody say, this person fought the good fight, they finished the race. Um, and to them, that means they made it through the random difficulties of life. Um, obviously, they're welcome to use those euphemisms however they want. There's nothing wrong with saying that. That's just not how Paul exactly was using them. Or, or he meant much more than he just made it through life. And it ties in, of course, with the, the next verse where he says, I have kept the faith. To keep the faith um, can also be taken a couple of different ways. I think both of these ways are probably appropriate, and I don't know which Paul intended, but it's maybe a little bit of both. I've kept the faith. I haven't abandoned. This is the first possibility. I haven't abandoned the faith. I've continued in the faith. I'm not apostate, right? Um, in spite of the outcome of my life, the persecution, the imprisonment, I still hold to faith in Jesus Christ. And resurrection from the dead. So that's one way that we might take it and easy to understand it that way. A second way that we could take it is for I have kept the faith is I have guarded it or I've 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 kept it from attack or I've kept it intact or I've preserved the faith. It's kind of like how Jesus talks to the father in John 17 when he says uh, Father, keep them, the disciples, keep them in your name as, as I have kept them in your name. And he goes on to talk about how he's guarded them and no one has been taken that has been given to him. So he's kept them in that sense. And I remember that's kind of how Paul has been talking to Timothy in this letter as he's saying, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Rightly handle the word of truth, he said in chapter two. And in Ephesus, as we've talked about, this is not an easy task. Ephesus, the, the faith is being attacked. The word of God is being attacked. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul said, uh, talking about the future, but probably this time that Timothy's in, in 2 Timothy, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. He says also in 1 Timothy, some have shipwrecked, they've, they've made shipwreck of their faith. And so that's going on in Ephesus as we've talked a lot about this false teaching and people leaving the faith left and right and, and other places that Paul has gone, certainly not just in Ephesus. And the entire time Paul has, has kept the faith, he's held on to it himself and he's keeping it unscathed. It's kind of like, um, I think on the first week we talked about 
the, the word of God kind of being like a, a golden football, right? That's being moved down the field. And Paul is like saying, hey, we, it's, we, I've kept it. We, we've, we've protected that. There's not a scratch on that golden football. And it's entering into the end zone unscathed. So I think Paul's saying both of those things. I've, I've continued to uphold the faith and I've protected its integrity and, and kept it going. And so all three of those phrases, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, are basically saying the same thing. They're saying I've completed the objective God has given me. And so another question that we'll ask in our reflection time is what fight are you fighting? Or what race are you racing? Is it a fight and race of keeping the faith? Lastly, verse 8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. The crown of righteousness, again, I've said this in several ways. There's two ways that this can be understood. Um, Some see this as, and I think this is the right understanding, but the crown of righteousness is the reward or rewards we receive for being righteous in our life on earth. Reward for our good works. It's a reasonable understanding of it because there are plenty of teachings from Paul and even Jesus that our deeds on earth somehow will be rewarded in heaven. I have here in my notes that there's um, like 15 different passages that, that speak of something like this. Some of those 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear, Paul talking to the church, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He talks about in 1 Corinthians, if anyone's work is built on the foundation, he will receive a reward and it's, it's based on the way that they build on this foundation for the type of reward that they will receive. And there are some who are saved, who built on the foundation of Jesus and are in heaven, we could say, or will be in heaven, but their works won't be rewarded in the same way because they didn't use the same good building materials that the others did. So um, reward, it's a, it's a biblical concept. Um, even Jesus talks about laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's the same laying up. Henceforth, Paul says here, I have laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Okay. That word award in verse eight, it actually means to pay back. Okay. I know I've said it before. I think last time a lot of people struggle with that concept, but we should remember just a couple of things when we're talking about reward in heaven. Um, First of all, in, in heaven, in the new creation, There's no pride and there's no envy. So you won't be boastful about the reward that you receive and I won't be coveting what you receive. We can't. That's impossible outside of sin. Um, Another thing to remember is that all of our good works, whatever it is that we accomplish, are empowered by the grace of God. So anything that we have to show is because God has done it in us. It's like Paul says in Colossians, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I'm struggling and toiling for these good works that God has called me to with the energy and the empowerment of God. So all the praise goes to God. One commentator I read uh, says this, 
an expectation of reward is a recognition of God's grace. Those who anticipate reward will not be able to boast, look at my accomplishments. They should be able to offer praise to God by saying, thank you, Lord, for what you've produced in me. The very expectation of reward is an acknowledgement of God's grace. So we aren't due any reward for our good works, but God gives it anyway. He loves to give. He um, looks for any way possible that he can give to us, regardless of our works and because of our works. He will give, give, give. And one of the ways he does that is rewarding our righteousness on earth. Um, a second way that this could be taken, the crown of righteousness, would just be the perfect righteousness that each of us will receive when we get to heaven. We will then be crowned with righteousness, we'll be made righteous. Now that's also a true concept backed up by plenty of scriptures. We will actually and fully be made righteous in the presence of Christ where there's no sin, right? Um, Paul says in Galatians, for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So maybe that's what, what Paul is talking about when we are crowned with righteousness. So I don't know which one of those two it is. I don't think we can know. Um, is it the crown for righteousness that we've done or are we crowned with righteousness at that point? The best I can tell, like I said, it's the first. It's a reward for our righteous deeds. But regardless, Paul is looking forward to receiving that crown. And even if we can't or he can't understand fully what he's receiving, it brings him great excitement and comfort as he's about to depart. So again, Paul's death isn't being seen as something that's bad. And it's not just Paul who receives a crown, but also all who have loved his appearing. I love that synonym for Christians. Those who have loved his appearing. Um, loved is in the perfect tense here in the Greek, which I be believe it means um, who have loved his appearing, like in the incarnation or what they've seen of Jesus and will continue to love. So when he appears again at the second coming, they will love it. So this appearing of the righteous judge, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul speaks to it a number of times in, in his letters um, to Timothy, especially, and to Titus. And um, we know about that appearing. That will be a moment when, if we kind of draw from other scriptures, Jesus will, will bust through the clouds and be revealed to all the earth. Um, just a few months ago, uh, our family was celebrating a Christian Passover Seder, and we added a tradition to that meal uh, where we, this year for the first time, um, near the end of the meal, we all went outside and we looked up to the sky to see if this would be the day or the night that Jesus would return. And we are eagerly anticipating his appearing. And unfortunately, he didn't appear that night and hasn't since, but it may be soon. Some people will love his appearing. And some people we read in Revelation will mourn when they see him. Um, people from every nation will mourn. I would imagine it's those who fought the good fight who 
finish the race, who kept the faith, who will love his appearing. And I think it's worth noting, too, that the crown comes to those who love the appearing first and foremost of Jesus. Not to those who love the appearing of the crown itself. So whatever amazing and undeserved reward we might be given for our works, or that the perfect undeserved righteousness that we're given by him, whatever, whatever those things are, that reward, the identifying mark of those who will receive that crown is their anticipation for Jesus himself. So we can look forward to the crown of righteousness, or James says the crown of life, uh, all of the many blessings of our inheritance. We can and should look forward to those. But our blessed hope, as Paul tells Titus, is the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. No reward compares. There's no greater anticipation. What else could we want to see except the appearing of our Savior? You can just imagine that for a moment when maybe you hear a rumble and you look up in the sky and there in the sky, whatever he looks like in all of his glory, you're looking at the face and, and existence of God right before your eyes to the one who has created you, the one who has saved you, and the one who satisfies you with his presence like nothing else you could ever be satisfied with. Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So a final question we'll ask in our reflection time is, do you love his appearing? Do you long to see that appearing? Um, just to end here, I will say in this letter, it's almost like that moment, the appearing of Christ, even though it is the primary greatest hope and longing that we have, it's almost mentioned in this passage kind of in passing right here at the end. And, and the crown seems to be the little bit bigger of the focus here. Um, I think that's because Paul's primary encouragement to Timothy, remember, is to fulfill his ministry in the here and now that ministry that has purpose, that ministry that will be rewarded. And so he mentions the crown as a reward for those who finish that race, who fight the good fight, not just for those who finish the race of life, but those who finish the race of their calling, for those who have kept the faith. Paul wants Timothy to know that his work on earth is not futile. Uh, even though we just read that people are going to be unwilling to listen to him. Um, but that his work, it's not going unnoticed by God, the one who rewards. If you remember that at the be beginning of the chapter um, where he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. He is watching. He is present with us. So in that and in light of the reward and that he will return, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. So he's not just telling Timothy to sit on his hands, 
and, and wait for the appearing of Jesus, which is what we all want to see. But while you long for his appearing, complete the noble objective that he has given you.